0: Welcome to the Security Matters podcast where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Security Event which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 22nd and 23rd of September 2020. To register for the show visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Our lead news item this week is a shocking one to say the very least. The latest figures emerging from the Office for National Statistics focus on a provisional review of COVID-19-related deaths by occupation across England and Wales. They cover the period up to and including Monday the 20th of April and suggest that males working as security officers had one of the highest death rates. According to ONS researchers, just shy of 3,000 deaths involving the coronavirus in the working age population were registered up to that date. Nearly two-thirds of these deaths were among men, with a total of 1,612 deaths. The rate of death involving COVID-19 is shown to be higher in males, with 9.9 deaths per 100,000, compared to 5.2 deaths per 100,000 in the female population. The major group with the highest rate of death involving COVID-19 was shown to be elementary workers, among them construction staff and cleaners. Elementary security operations fall into this group and exhibit the highest death rate of all, with 43.2 deaths per 100,000 males. That's equivalent to 70 deaths in the period under examination. Among the specific occupations included in this group, security officers and related occupations had the highest death rates, with 45.7 deaths per 100,000 males. That equates to 63 deaths in total. The ONS analysis has factored in age, but doesn't take account of people's ethnicity, their location, their wealth, or underlying health conditions. As a result, the analysis cannot prove the deaths were caused either by the jobs people do or by other factors. GMB, the trade union that represents security personnel, has described the ONS figures on COVID-19-related deaths as horrifying. John Phillips, acting GMB General Secretary, has stated, and I quote, bear in mind that these figures were drawn up before the government's latest announcement in relation to COVID-19. The fact is that if you are low paid and working through the COVID-19 crisis, you are more likely to die. That's how stark these figures really are. What has been a major cause of anger and concern among many practitioners operating in the private security business sector is the fact that frontline security staff are referenced in the INS document within the low-skilled workers category. The guarding sector itself has expressed a great deal of concern over the figures. Abbey Petcar, for example, the managing director of Magenta Security, has referred to them as being extremely worrying. Petcar has also pointed out that there's more to these figures than meets the eye. There's no denying the fact that the figures suggest security officers are at high risk, but let's not forget that their admirable dedication to the cause means they continue to work throughout the crisis. Petcar is right to state that those managing security officers must do their utmost to protect them. Ultimately, there's no reason these officers should be at higher risk of falling prey to the virus than many others in similar occupations if, and I stress the word if, the right measures are in place to support them. It's true that security officers are more likely to be handling goods if they're accepting postal deliveries, etc. They're also more likely to be the first person someone speaks to on a given site, but they can be well protected if this is made a priority. Security companies need to consider how they can use technology more effectively, limit physical contact for their officers, and put significant barriers in place to eliminate the transfer of germs. It's fair to suggest that technology will be a part of so many solutions to this crisis across all business sectors, and the security industry is no different here. How is the industry using technology, and how can that technology be employed in a better and even more purposeful way? Is there the potential to draw ideas and best practice from other industries? These are just two of the questions that demand to be addressed. Continuing the security officer focus theme, a group of 11 private sector security companies have recently joined forces in writing an open letter. They've written to the government, the chancellor, and MPs in the House of Commons, voicing their very strong concerns, around pressing employment issues presently impacting the sector during the pandemic. The businesses involved here are FGH Security, ShowSec, Security Group, Carlisle Support Services, Professional Security, Bridgegate Security, the Regency Security Group, Acon Security, Radius Security, Phoenix Security, and last but by no means least, TMS Protection. Collectively, these businesses preside over circa 300 million pounds worth of turnover per annum, and employ no less than 30,000 people They actually represent a sample of the 246,000 Security Industry Authority door supervision license holders, many of whom support the £130 billion hospitality sector. That sector has really suffered due to the pandemic. In the open letter, the group has focused on the coronavirus job retention scheme, which they believe to be a welcome part of the government's package of measures designed to support businesses throughout the pandemic. The coronavirus job retention scheme itself is due to come to an end, in its current form, at least, on the 30th of June. According to the Guardian newspaper, around 27% of workers are now being supported by furlough payments across the private sector. However, the hospitality and event sector is disproportionately reliant on furlough, with more than 80% of workers supported in this way. The security companies back in the letter fully expect the event sector, the hospitality sector, and indeed the nighttime economy to be included in any furlough scheme extension from the government but they are very concerned that this support will only go to those who are directly employed. They do fear that contracted suppliers, such as professional thought division companies, may well be left out of the mix. Peter Harrison, the Managing Director of FGA Security, has stated, and I quote, if furlough is not extended to our professional employees, then companies who are fully HMRC compliant face a significant bill for redundancy, notice pay and accrued holiday costs. Depending on the circumstances involved, The consultation process can take anywhere between 30 and 45 days. If we are talking about the latter, then those consultations will need to start imminently. The redundancy costs to which Harrison refers will mainly affect professional companies who are fully PAYE compliant and contribute large amounts of income tax and national insurance. Additional impacts include the concern for public safety if there's a shortage of trained and SIA licensed door supervisors. The real worry here is that people could well leave the industry to find other work and might not return. There's already a shortage of personnel and there's now a risk of many security personnel leaving the hospitality industry and entering other sectors such as retail or perhaps healthcare. Individuals could be left unemployed at a time when there's uncertainty around exactly what measures will be needed to enforce social distancing across society in general. It's certainly going to be interesting to see how the government responds to these very real and genuine concerns from an industry whose staff are potentially putting their own lives on the line to assist in the battle to save others. Our first interviewee this time around is Professor Martin Gill. As many of you will know, Martin is the Director of Perpetuity Research, a Fellow of the Security Institute and a Chartered Security Professional. Earlier this week I spoke with Martin about the value of security as well as the Outstanding Security Performance Awards. First, we chatted about the subject of career paths and career progression in the security business sector. Thanks very much for joining us, Martin. Uh, In one of your recent OSPA's Thought Leadership webinars, I I posed a question about the future of security management as a discipline. Um, I know that you are keenly focused on the subject of career paths and define career progression in the security world through the the SRI, the Security Research Initiative. Could you explain what work you're doing in this sphere at the moment? Yes, thanks, Brian.
1: And it was a good question, I might add. Uh, I think one of the key things about the security world is that it hasn't maximised its potential to say how good it really is. Uh, and I think we're going to come back to this later in the webinar, but the current Security Research Initiative project is looking at the sorts of factors that attract people to security, that the sorts of uh, um, measures in place to keep people in security once they're there, and uh, how we might improve on this in the future. And I think it's a, it's a big ask. It's a, it's a big topic. For all the variety and for all the challenging opportunities, it still remains a truism that police uh, military are the obvious outlets for those in, in interested in security. Uh, and strangely, the whole private security world has been outside that. So we've been looking at that. We've got a webinar actually this, um, this Thursday on the uh, 21st of May uh, about this very topic. You can always look at our, our OSPA's website afterwards. The idea to try and understand this whole area of careers, talent spotting, talent attracting,
0: talent keeping. Following on from that, Martin, there's been much talk around the value of security as a discipline, and particularly so at the present time, of course. What's your take on this, and how and why does the value of security need to be demonstrated at every possible opportunity, in your view? I think, Brian, to some extent, it's a statement of the obvious
1: to say that security needs to demonstrate its value. I think one of the key issues is that this whole world of security hasn't positioned itself correctly. It's seen as all too often marginal to business operations rather than a key part of every process, rather than a key part of every worker's and visitor's uh, uh, life. Uh, And therein lies the the starting point. That uh, we do know that uh, clients value security because they buy it. Um, The problem is that many aren't positioned or knowledgeable enough, uh, um, and I blame the security world for this and people like myself in it, who haven't communicated the benefits of doing it well as opposed to average. And they're enormous, and there are knock-on benefits of doing it well. So the value proposition is an important one, but it's not just about that thing called return on investment ROI. It's about the whole context in which we view security, understand what it can do, and recognize that... It's more than just a, the protection of assets, it's enabling organisations to operate effectively, legally, profitably, uh, in sometimes difficult environments. That's its dynamics.
0: Now, you yourself, Martin, you're a fellow of the Security Institute and also a chartered security professional. The latter, of course, is seen as the gold standard for security practitioners at the present time. Why do you feel the chartered status for security professionals and the push for a chartered security institute is so vitally important?
1: Well, that slightly overlaps the answer to the previous questions. That one of the things about the security set is undersold itself. It's full of very talented people, extremely able companies, fantastic teams, wonderful initiatives, but they all, generally speaking, operate under the radar. And, uh, um, and therefore, as a sector, it doesn't get the recognition it deserves, or it merits at least. And it hasn't really positioned itself well. And I think the uh, Chartered Institute of um, Security, the whole thinking behind that is a step in the right direction. It's getting recognition for this field of activity, which is important, makes a different to organisations, which to date hasn't been um, at the forefront in uh, putting itself forward for high-level recognition.
0: And coming back to the Outstanding Security Performance Award, which we mentioned at the start, Martin, why did you devise this recognition scheme and what are your hopes for its progression in the years ahead? Well, I have to say that uh, um, I love the
1: Oscars. And um, the reason why we started it is we conducted a study on the reasons why uh, companies are successful and individuals are successful. And what was striking about this was that people, uh, buyers and suppliers, uh, pointed to credible award schemes as gaining recognition. Yet in the security world, there's lots of award schemes but ones that have global appeal, are based on ethical principles, are uh, seen to create a level, level playing field as a point of principle, were hard to find. Uh, in fact, there was none that filled that, uh, those criteria. And so we spent a year researching it to identify what are the ingredients and the characteristics of a good uh, security award scheme. And it's now taking place in 13 countries and growing. And the idea is around the world to create a level playing field for identifying those who are really good at what they do in security because it matters. It matters that you are very good as opposed to merely average. The knock-on consequences of being very good as opposed to merely average are important not just for clients but for the public um, at large. And these are why we must begin to identify those and look to them to find out what they are doing that can be replicated by others.
0: And speaking from an academic perspective, Martin, when it comes to the security business sector, are there any pressing areas of research you feel remain to be tackled by yourselves? Well, I can't tell you how many there
1: are. There are just thousands of areas uh, waiting to be tackled. I think uh, COVID-19 has uh, raised all sorts of implications, and our next project will be uh, uh, related to uh, COVID-19. But much more than that, there is an issue about how we get security recognised, how we get its people to... Position themselves for for others to understand the impact they're having and why that matters on organizational business life. So uh, I could probably list twenty different projects that would merit uh, uh, funding, uh, and therein lies the challenge. You see, because security hasn't been typically very well funded. Uh, another another area where it's been neglected.
0: Just to finish, Martin, what are the key takeaways from some of your OSPERS thought leadership webinars, which have been excellent, by the way, and I've tuned into many of them myself, as you know. What are the key takeaways of those so far? Well, you, you have tuned into many, Brian, and
1: I thank you for that. And uh, we've had a global audience, actually, around the world, and uh, many people who don't watch them live watch them afterwards. And, uh, of course, they're accessible to do that. And um, here's, here's what I'm taking away in very general terms. That the security world is alive and kicking. That there are examples of outstanding practice. That the security world at its best has adapted uh, to COVID-19 with uh, initiative, with enthusiasm, uh, um, and being innovative. And uh, in so doing, has provided the opportunity to think about security differently. The question now remains whether it can maintain that position, that interest, and build on that base when we have a a post-COVID-19 environment, which will likely include a harsh economic realities once again. And if we know that security shines in a crisis, we also know that it suffers in times of economic hardship when it can be one of the first um, to find its uh, input uh, constraint. So therein lies our warning sign, chance to prepare, uh, and we need to be ready.
0: 70% of British businesses are using multi-factor authentication and a virtual private network to manage the security risks posed by the increase of remote working during the coronavirus pandemic. That figure emerges from research conducted recently by Centrify into how companies are adapting to COVID-19, and we've reported on this in detail on the security Matters website multi-factor authentication is an authentication method in which a computer user is granted access to their system only after presenting two or more known identity confirmations uh, such as a password and a code sent to their known phone number a hardware key and uh, biometric confirmation like a fingerprint scan for example a vpn on the other hand extends a private network across a public network thereby allowing internet users to protect their location and remain anonymous the data was obtained via a survey of 200 senior business decision makers across large and medium-sized UK companies. 46% of those surveyed have already noted an increase in phishing attacks since implementing a policy of widespread remote working across the company. Interestingly, the poll also revealed that 43% of individuals believe the increased cybersecurity protocols for remote workers will have a negative impact on workplace productivity. Similarly, 49% of those questions stated that they prefer to remove extra authentication steps for basic apps and data in the workplace as they feel it adds unnecessary time to procedures. 60% of business decision makers support biometric data as a suitable replacement for more time-intensive multi-factor authentication in order to increase productivity. It's clear from all this that businesses recognise the risks posed by increased remote working during this difficult time, With the majority opting for multi-factor authentication solutions in order to verify every user and protect company data, much of which is very sensitive. Uh, What's troubling is the other 30% who are not using multi-factor authentication. Bear in mind that multi-factor authentication is recognised as security best practice. Every organisation wants to ensure productivity for remote workers, but this cannot come at the expense of proper security. Companies need to weigh the risks they're facing with these heightened threats, very carefully and take any and all measures available to ensure that access is granted only to authenticated end users. Our final news item on this edition of the Security Matters podcast concerns the Securitas Group. The group has just delivered its financial results for the first quarter of 2020 and they show an organic sales growth of 2%. Such growth declined in all business segments, in fact, due to the extraordinary situation realised by the coronavirus pandemic, which really started to impact the business at the beginning of March and then increasingly so throughout that month. The Security Services Europe business has been most impacted by the pandemic, in fact. This has been driven in the main by a rapid decline in activity across the aviation sector. Securitas has been able to respond quickly to its clients' demands by leveraging a strong range of protective services through a global and local footprint. The business protects critical activities and supply chains required to handle the pandemic, including by way of increased activity levels at hospitals, for example. Pleasingly, uh, security solutions and electronic security grew by 10% in the first quarter to represent 22% of total group sales. At the moment, the business isn't prioritising acquisitions but intends to return to its previous acquisition approach when the situation normalises. Operating margin in the first quarter was 3.8%. Price and wage balance was on par in the first quarter and retaining that balance is going to be a key focus area for Securitas throughout 2020. Adjusted for changes in exchange rates, the operating result actually declined by 19%. A good cash flow was realised in the first quarter and the strong focus on cash management remains a key priority across all business segments. To protect its strong financial position, this business has enacted a number of cash measures. It's also signed a new revolving five-year credit facility to replace the existing one, and the business is closely managing costs and continuously assessing how to adjust to the current climate. Commenting in our story on the Security Matters website, President and CEO Magnus Altqvist asserts that the company continues to drive its strategic transformation programme despite the currently challenging conditions. It's apparent then that driving digitization and modernisation is going to be critical for enhancing the Securitas offer in the future. Our final interviewee on this edition of the Security Matters podcast is Pat Jeffries. Pat is the Commercial Director at Aboy UK. He's worked for the business since 2004 and began his present role back in 2011. We interviewed Pat about Iron changes in the wake of COVID 19 and also the likely roadmap for access control here in the UK so uh, thanks very much for joining us Patrick. in simple terms your area of expertise at Apple uk is the interaction between the door and the access system now of course it's also about providing a seamless interaction between the hardware and the access system itself bearing all of this in mind how do you see Ironmongery changing in the wake of the COVID 19 pandemic
2: okay well very interesting question actually i mean there's uh, a few things that uh, we feel probably will change and i mean probably the most obvious is very much not having to touch that handle or indeed the request to exit button or indeed anything that's around the door, because in a perfect world, we'd like to actually uh, be able to go through the door in either direction without any physical interaction between the user's hand and any ironmongery on the door. That in itself does present a few challenges. I um, mean, the most obvious thing that we can do here is uh, look at door automation, which I feel probably will be quite popular in some cases. Because in an ideal world, we can actually use our credential, which is, is very often contactless. Of course, it could be biometric and actually use that as a signal to trigger the door operator, which then creates the sequence of events where the door operator becomes the brains of the door. The door operator then instructs the lock to unlock. The door opens. You obviously go through the door and the door closes behind you. Does present a few pal- planning challenges, and there's also some compliance issues. I mean, firstly, in terms of planning, this 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 interaction is not actually instant. So, rather than actually having the reader positioned on the door um, to the to the side of the door, it would be better to have the reader on route, so that all of these actions in the background actually take place seamlessly and we don't arrive at a closed door. So there's some important considerations in terms of design, but there also is some important considerations in terms of compliance, because um, obviously we have a fire door, we need to ensure a fire door is going to close. We also actually need a device on the door that's actually fire tested in terms of the Ironmongery compliance for the blocking of the door. But particularly where we've got an escape door, In normal circumstances, we're actually going to go through that door in and out as we normally do with the door operator operating the door and allowing us to go through. But of course, in the event of a need to escape, we still need an escape compliant product. So that still means that we actually need that lever handle there. And of course, we're only going to use the lever handle in the event of emergency. All bets are off, the power's gone pull the handle down, we've got an EM-179 or a panic bar EM-1125 to allow us to actually escape so we're never going to get trapped in the building.
0: Leading on from that, Pat, for the benefit of our readers, could you explain exactly how automatic doors interfaces access control systems and also outline the importance of that interface?
2: Yeah, again, a very interesting question because uh, it's actually very simplistic because when we look at um, um, access control, the access control system will actually instruct the lock to unlock. And that's actually what we don't actually want in this particular case because effectively the door operator becomes the brains of the door. So in the door operator what we want it to do is we want the access control system to give it a signal to actually open. And once it's received that momentary signal to open, the door operator then takes over and becomes the brains of the door function. The door operator will instruct the lock to actually unlock, which will be motor driven, not solenoid driven. The boats will be pulled back in, and once the boats are in the lock case, the door operator will then start the sequence of opening the door. It will then stay open for a predetermined time, and the door will then close. And when the, the lock meets the frame, the boats will be thrown through spring force, and at which point the door operator can report back to the access system that we've got a secure door. So, the reality is it's very simple. The bit that we need to make quite clear here is that actually the door operator becomes a command module for the function of the door. But that's controlled and interfaced back to the access control system purely
0: as a trigger. What are the implications of specifying access control regimes in respect to the means of escape from a given building and also the overriding requirement for no compromise when it comes to life safety paths.
2: Well, life safety is is a massively important consideration. And I mean, there are really three things that we need to consider here. I mean, number one is something called dynamic lockdown, which actually is important. And, you know, to look at dynamic lockdown, which actually is not a mandatory requirement, but it is something that government have uh, have taken seriously. They have published very much as a result of instances like the Charlie Hebdo incident, which started to ball rolling with the New York Times has followed on. I mean, we actually had an instance where a very brave uh, policeman unfortunately lost his life at the Houses of Parliament, and they actually were enacting dynamic lockdown during that process. They may not have realised, but they actually were. There was a contingent of visitors going from one part of the building to the other part of the building, and they were ushered off and actually locked in for their own security. That's a form of dynamic lockdown. But when we actually look at um, our traditional doors and particularly our perimeter doors and any doors that lead off of corridors, I mean, if the mad gunman actually gets into the, uh, into the building and you think of the American schools where the first thing he does is he actually breaks the um, or presses the alarm button and great, all of the escape doors fail unlocked so we can get out. But dynamic lockdown says we should run. Well, clearly we've got no, no hindrance there. We can run if it's safe to escape. But equally what it's saying is that if it's not safe to escape, find a place of safety behind perhaps a steel door. But of course you can't hide behind an unlocked door, so the fail lock bit becomes part of the problem. Now don't get me wrong, you know, the wooden door I'm looking at here is not going to give me any ballistic protection, but the solid wall to the side of it actually would. So if faced with a locked door, that terrorist will then move on and I hopefully will be in a place of safety to wait until I'm actually rescued. So we are, we always say to people, draw an imaginary line down the middle of the door, because actually the two sides of the door need to do two different things. So on the inside of the door where I need to escape, I actually need an escape-compliant product. That escape-compliant product is always going to allow me to escape, regardless of what the power is doing at the door. But from the outside of the door, I can actually have that fell locked. And that fail locked is actually going to give me my dynamic lockdown so that's one thing we need to consider the two other things we need to consider is when we look at a door I always teach people to think of it as a hole in the wall and then ask yourself three simple questions is it convenient well look we can argue most doors are convenient I mean arguably sometimes they're inconvenient because they're actually closed but the convenience factor really means is keeping out the rain is keeping in the heat is keeping us private but there are two other key factors that we need to know before we specify any ironmongery for a door, and those key factors actually are: is it a fire door? Well, if the door is a fire door, we need fire-tested products, and it's vitally important that that door closes in the event of in the event of a fire to give us our compartmentalisation throughout the building. But equally, we need if that door is an escape door, we must be able to escape from the escape side via a tested and CE-marked escape device, either to BSEM 179 for an emergency escape door, less than 60 people familiar with the use of the door, or BSEM 1125 for a panic escape door, where we've got more than 60 escapees or indeed it's something like a cinema where we have a real risk if if people are actually hindered on their um, escape process. There is a third standard, which is BSEM 13637, which 13637 allows an element of electrical control. It's quite an in-depth standard, but it does allow for special circumstances where perhaps we'd actually like an escape door. that's only an escape door in, in an emergency situation, but that's quite a complex standard to discuss. The one thing it does make clear is that That escape door needs to be accessed via a live lever handle or paddle handle for 179 and a panic bar for 1125. And that's actually a tested solution. It's the three components working together. And it's very, very important that we actually get that right from a life safety perspective, a fire perspective, and also
0: an escape perspective. And last but not least, Pat, what do you sense will be the roadmap for access control system development in the immediate years ahead, and what will be the key drivers from your point of view influencing solutions? I think there would be a few things. I mean, there, there clearly is the obvious things
2: we've discussed so far, which is actually we want to avoid touching things wherever possible, so that the handle may become just the the life safety application, the door may become automatic. And of course, there's always going to be price objections here because, you know, adding an automatic door operator is not just the cost of the door operator, it's the cost of installing it, it's the cost of maintaining it, and in fairness, it's actually the additional cost that will be required for the upgraded ironmongery because we won't be able to use our most popular lock, the solenoid lock. I think that will drive some change. Having said that, I think the thing that will arguably drive the biggest change is actually when we sit down and review where we actually were in terms of COVID-19. Because we are going to have to ask ourselves the question, did our access control system, did our security, did it actually provide us with what we actually needed? Was I relying on power to keep the building closed, which clearly could have been dangerous? We could easily have seen power cuts and then all doors might be open. Did my users, were they blocked? You know, was I able to actually, at the press of a button, lock all of the staff out, but still allow the security team and the essential users to gain access to areas that I are wanted? Could we find the key? You know, all of these questions, I think, will highlight a need to say that we need to be better prepared for circumstances like this, should we see anything in the future. And of course, I'm really looking at the ironmongery bit. When we actually think about the access control bit, there are lots of things that probably will change. Maybe slightly out of my comfort zone, but, you know, we're talking about social distancing. Will we use the access control system? to tell us how many people are in a given room, to maybe restrict access for extra users when that room is full. Will we be looking at roll calls? Um, The other area that we may see change is actually the, the use of the credential. I mean, we clearly don't want keypads where we have to punch numbers. That clearly does present a risk. What other means might we use? It could be biometric, it could be lots and lots of different things that may actually change in terms of the credentials. Or maybe even our friend the mobile phone, because the mobile phone is at least our mobile phone. So if we've got credentials on there, it may well well mean that we can actually use our own device or bring your own device. So I think there will be big implications going forward.
0: brings us to the end of this latest edition of the security matters podcast many thanks to martin gill and pat jeffries for their contributions and also grateful thanks to our sponsors at the security event the security event runs at the nec in birmingham on the 22nd and 23rd of september 2020 to register for the show visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk don't forget to visit our website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters where you can view our podcasts and read the latest industry news and opinion. Please do contact us if there are any key things or issues you would like us to explore in upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag securitypod. On that note, make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBM SecMatters. As a reminder, the Security Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into the platform search box. We'll see you next time.